and we are beginning a new series today, which is a new series, but it's building on an old series. If you guys were with us a few months ago, you'll remember we were doing a series called Finding My Faith, and we're going through the first four chapters of Hebrews. And those passages, the first four chapters of Hebrews is kind of like the introduction to Hebrews. And we talked about things like who Jesus is. Jesus is deity, meaning that Jesus is God and and God is Jesus. We talked about the importance of not just having faith, but how do we find faith? And we talked about how sin damages and destroys not just our lives, but our communities and our world. And today we're going to finish the fourth chapter of Hebrews. We didn't do that on the last message, but we're doing it in this series because it begins this series. And it's a series that we're called Losing My Religion. Losing My Religion. Um, Because this is a transitional passage, there are going to be elements of both series, those series that we just did and the series that we're going into. And this series is called Losing My Religion, not because it was a famous song a long time ago, but really because it is the theme of the next few chapters of Hebrews. The first four chapters, the author of Hebrews is trying to say, this is how you find faith. This is how you can get it. This is how you can develop it. This is why you should have faith. And now what the author is going to go into is he's going to talk about the importance of quitting or losing your religion, which may be an interesting thing for you to consider as you sit here, you watch or listen online to church a church gathering with a pastor who's talking to you. And I'm saying it is time to quit our religion, according to the author of Hebrews. And throughout the next few weeks of this series, there's going to be a lot of religious terminology from the old Testament that may not make sense to you. I'll do my best to explain it to you and what it means and why they're bringing it up. But the, at the end of the day, at the end of each one of our sessions that we have, just know that what the author is trying to communicate um, is the importance that religion is the past and relationship is the present and the future. That relationship is the future. Think about the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus's time walking around. They would have memorized the entire Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament. They would have followed the laws and those those rules in Leviticus diligently. They didn't only just know what all of them were, but they followed them to a T. And that was religion. That was the religion at the time that this letter was written. And it boiled down to the Old Testament really being turned into a giant rule book. The Old Testament is a bunch of do's and don'ts, and this is what we're going to do. And really, it made God inaccessible. Because if you didn't follow the rules, if you didn't do what they told you to do, if you didn't have it memorized, you could not know God. You could not experience God. But now that Jesus has come and he's lived and he's died and he's been resurrected and we have these followers of Jesus coming up all over the place. We have a relationship with God or the opportunity to have a relationship with God. And as such, how you and I and how they even 2000 years ago flourished as spiritual people was vastly different than how they did before Jesus. And even though it's vastly different, and I would add, it is so much better to have a relationship with the living God than have a religion. We kind of fall back to religion, don't we? If you didn't grow up in the church, that's okay. But if you did, you know what I'm saying? 
You tell yourself, I have a relationship with God. I'm going to seek God out. I'm going to pray because I want to talk to God. I'm going to read the Bible because I want to hear from God. And then pretty soon you're doing those things because it's like you start to feel ashamed or guilty that you didn't do it. And all of a sudden it becomes a spiritual obligation for you. And we've fallen back into not a relationship with the living God, but we've fallen back into religious duties. These are things I have to do so God isn't mad at me. These are things I have to do so that I can feel like I'm a good person. And it's odd. It's weird that we do that. I want to continue to push us toward a relationship with the living God. So we're going to go to Hebrews. We're going to go to chapter four, and we're going to read from verses 14 and 15 to start. So if you want to use one of the green Bibles, your smart uh, phone to access the Bible app, um, you can go ahead and do so. And let me just remind you that we do not know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, it, it wasn't Paul. We're, we're pretty sure that it wasn't. Um, it wasn't James. It wasn't Jude. It wasn't Luke. It wasn't Mark. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. And upon receiving this letter, it would have been read out loud because most of the audience at that time could not read. They were illiterate, so they couldn't read. So you'd have one person who would come to the front and read the entire thing to them, kind of like a message or talk in church like we're doing here. And the primary audience of this letter to the Hebrews was a Jewish audience, which is opposite of us in the room. We are primarily not Jewish in this room or um, perhaps online. So it's important to understand that context, context, especially with today's passage, um, beginning with 14, when they write. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do yet. And yet he did not sin. So here's some of that religious language I was talking about. Here we have a high priest and our culture and our language, we may say, okay, that sounds old Testament-y, sure. Um, but to a primarily Jewish audience, it conjured up a lot of images and feelings. High priest wasn't just a nickname that this author gave Jesus. It wasn't like he's a wonderful counselor and our everlasting father. And he's our high priest to call Jesus. The high priest had tremendous and has tremendous theological implications for you and me today, because the high priest in the old Testament, going back hundreds of years before Jesus was the person who stood between people and God. There was the high priest. They stood in between that. And because they were the people who stood between people and God, they were like special. They got special clothes. They wore special robes. They had special rules. And they were the only people who could enter the most holy place. And they could only do that one time a year. And in that time, they would offer sacrifice, which would give the rest of the community the forgiveness from God. See, people like me, And people like you, we could not have experienced God. We weren't allowed to be in God's presence. There was a high priest for that. He was going to take care of that for you. We couldn't even go into the place where God's presence was. The place we we come here in a church building or in a community center and we gather and we're like, we want to experience God and God's presence. But understand that thousands of years ago, there was one person who could do that. 
And so with Jesus being the high priest, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is this priesthood system, this system of uh, do's and don'ts and people who are in charge and people who can encounter God and people who can't is overthrown. We don't need high priests anymore. We don't need priests anymore. We have a high priest in Jesus. Now, this would have been challenging to a Jewish audience, and I'm sure that you can understand it. Imagine for generation after generation, imagine it being so entrenched in your culture that you follow Levitical law. That the Pharisees are the people you go to when you have questions. And mom, dad, you know, they're dragging you to the temple as a little kid. And you're memorizing this stuff and you're told that this is the way that we do it. And then all of a sudden, there's this Jesus who comes on the scene. And there's this author of Hebrews who says, you can throw it out. Throw the playbook out. Now, if you were bad at living by the rule of Leviticus, this was a good day for you. Hallelujah. <laughs> we're throwing it out. We're playing a new game. But if you were good at the game, if you had memorized the Old Testament, how ticked off would you be? That there's all of a sudden there's a new high priest? What? There's a new game that we're playing? There's a new set of rules? There's a new thing that we're going by? And that's exactly what the author is saying. And we read again in this passage that Jesus was tempted like you and I. He faced all of the same testings that you and I do. Now, that was the main part of a previous conversation we had in the series. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But for today, I think it's really important to point out that Jesus had free will. That Jesus didn't have to do anything. That Jesus was tempted just like you and I. He could have been selfish. He could have chosen to be unobedient. He could have been hurtful to people, but he wasn't. He chose otherwise. You see, because Jesus could not have been tempted like you and I, if it wasn't real temptation. If he was tempted like you and I, I mean, really tempted, he had to have been able to give into it. Because if he had some cosmic, divine, get out of jail free card, when the temptation got too much, Jesus, just say the word and I'll take it away. Then that's not like you and me. Because you don't have that. And I don't have that. When the temptation gets too much, I can't say, well, God, it's too much to take it away. And God says, okay, that, that cancer is healed. Okay, that relationship is restored. The temptation is too much. Bada bing, it's over. I don't want you to fall. We don't have that. And neither did Jesus. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But going on to the implications for um, the people of Hebrews and for us, we read in verse 16, the author says, let us boldly, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So not only is Jesus this high priest, not only did he throw out the system of priesthood and, and these do's and don'ts, but unlike the priest of the past, the priest who would stand between you and God, Jesus as the high priest says, come meet my father. Jesus invites you into God's presence. Jesus invites you to experience God. The threshold has been open. The veil has been torn and we no longer have to wait once a year for one person to come in and, and speak on my behalf to God. Because now because of Jesus, you can have a relationship. You have open access to God, not just right here now, but you do right here now, but on the car ride home this week at work, when your boss pisses you off, 
when you're fighting with your spouse on Thursday night or with the kids on Monday morning when it's time to go back to school, whenever it is, you have access to the living God. And what we read here is that in God's presence, when we come into the throne room, do we see, are we judged? Are we ashamed? Are we guilted? No. It says that when we come into the throne room of God, when we experience access to God, we receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. When we come into the throne room of God, whether that's here on a Sunday night or you're watching or listening online or wherever it is, when we come into the throne room of God, it is there that we find help when we need it the most. And I believe that gives us two applications and one challenge tonight. And the first application, going back to those first verses, is that we are to hold firmly to faith. Hold firmly to faith. We're confronted with a question tonight. Is my life about me? Is my life me-centered? Is it about what I want to do, my goals, my dreams, my accomplishments, what I hope to do in my life? Or... Is it God-centered? Now, just because your life is God-centered doesn't mean that those things don't matter. If your life is God-centered, it doesn't mean that you have to give up on your dreams and your hopes. Who do you think wired you to have those hopes and dreams? God put those in you because God has a vision and a mission and a purpose for your life. But the difference is when it is God-centered, it's about him. The things that I like, my dreams, they are about him. They're about his kingdom. And that is awesome. When my life is me centered and I pray, well, that's religion. That's not relationship anymore. My life is about me, but I pray. Well, why do you pray if your life is all about you? Well, it makes me feel better. Well, I need help when accomplishing my goals. Well, I have a sore throat and the aspirin's not helping too much. and I just need God to do a miracle in my life. It becomes religion when our lives are about us and we're doing the church thing or we're doing the pray thing or we're doing the read the Bible thing or going to group. If our life is all about us, we are operating out of a place of religious obligation. And that is the opposite application of what we want tonight. We want to live a God centered life. And so we hold firmly to our faith. We don't just hold firmly to our faith. We draw near to God. Drawing near to God is absolutely vital if you want to have healthy faith that doesn't waver based on your situation and circumstances. Drawing near to God is continuous. It's not just something that you do once a week or uh, once a moment when you're here and you have communion. You're like, I'm going to draw near to God right now, but it is continuous. It is ongoing. We are pursuing God. Now, let me just point out the obvious that it is easier to draw near to God when you're on top of a high mountain. When life is going great, when everything is the way you envisioned it and the plan went according to plan and and you just can't believe it, it's easy to say, well, praise God. Wow, God, you're so good. Hashtag blessed, right? As I'm posting it on my Instagram. Love you, God. The flip side of that is it's really easy to draw near to God when things absolutely suck. You're sick all the time and this isn't going right and that's not going right. And you come up with one plan and that falls through and you come up with another plan and there's a barrier. And no matter what you do and everything you try, it just doesn't seem to work. And then it's easy to be frustrated and come to God and say, God, why? God, help me. 
Don't you see me? Don't you love me? You remember when I was on top of the mountain and things were good and I praised you? And God said, yeah, the problem was that was 10,000 miles ago. Because most of life is lived between the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And that's where you and I need to get better at drawing near to God on the mundane Tuesday afternoon. We've talked so much in the last year about unprecedented times, right? Unprecedented times. We're living in unprecedented times. We need to draw near to God during precedented times. On that day that is is so routine, those are the days that we need to continue to draw near to God. To have a vibrant faith, to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus is to be in a constant state of drawing near to him. And I'd like to add that when we feel like we don't need God, when we feel like we don't need Christian community, when we feel like we don't need to pray, when we don't feel like we don't need to read the Bible, when we feel like whatever we don't need, we don't need, we don't need, that's likely when you need it the most is when you don't feel like you need it. So will you draw near to God only when things are really great or when things are really bad? Or will we learn to draw near to God in the in-between spaces? And that leads us to the challenge, right? The application is easy to understand, to, to firmly hold on to faith and to draw near to God, but it won't come naturally because your human reaction will always be to do what feels good right now. Your human reaction will always be to do whatever is easiest right now. And you've heard me say it so many times, but what's easiest or what feels the best right now in the moment is hardly ever the right thing to do. And so that's the challenge of today. It's why we've gone through hard times and we've felt alone. It's why we know people who have gone through difficult times and they felt like they've gone through it alone because when things start to get tough, those situations, circumstances, we haven't hit the lowest of lows yet, but when we're in somewhere between the middle and life is starting to go down toward the valley, what we end up doing is we end up forgetting about God and all of the work that we've been doing to build that relationship with God. And we say, I need more control. I need to do this. I need to control it. I need the better plan. And so the challenge is, is if we're on the way down from the mountain, we're on the way up from the mountain, we're at the heights of the mountains, we're at the lowest parts of the mountain, whatever it is, we need to come to Jesus. Now, I want to end with this, a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, which comes through in this passage in Hebrews. We talk about it a lot during Easter, but I want to talk about it tonight. And it's the night that Jesus is betrayed and he is in the garden. Um, Jesus pulled away from them, uh, the other disciples, about a stone's throw, knelt down and he prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. But please, not what I want. What do you want? And at once an angel from heaven was at his side, strengthening him. And he prayed on all the harder. Sweat wrung from him like drops of blood poured off of his face. In this moment, what is Jesus asking? Jesus is saying, can I not die tomorrow? Can we just skip the whole betrayal, torture, beaten, hung, died on a cross? Father, is there any way that we can not do this? And this comes back to the point that Jesus was tempted like you and I, and he wasn't just always gung-ho about it. And and my God, you know, fathers will be done. But literally in a moment of weakness and at the lowest of lows in his life, he says, God, please don't make me go through with this. 
And had Jesus in that moment decided to be unobedient and to be selfish, our destinies right now would be pretty grim. I don't know if we can even imagine it. If Jesus had just said, I'm out, the temptation is too great. But because Jesus knows what's going to happen, because Jesus knows that when it's done, when the temptation's over, that he is the high priest, that he will usher you and me in to the kingdom of heaven with God so that you can have a relationship with the living God. He says, not what I want, but what you want and your will be done. And in his hardest moment of his life, Jesus draws near to God and clings firmly to his faith. And in that he is helped that the angel comes to his side and strengthens him. Whatever you're going through, a relationship with a spouse or partner that's gone from bad to worse, a mental situation that gets darker and darker, a financial hole that can't go any deeper because you've hit rock bottom, an addiction that seems stronger than your will, a child who is facing their own troubles that you as a parent want to jump in and desperately undo for them, but you cannot. Whatever it is that you're facing, we all have a choice. We can let go of our faith or we can cling firmly to it and we can draw near to God or we can draw ourselves away from God. But you'll still have the problems. You'll still have those issues. The only difference will be, will you have God walking beside you and leading you forward? Or will you be going at those things alone? We all have a choice. And I'm not talking about raising your hand and coming to the front and saying a certain prayer or saying certain words in a certain way, but I'm saying, are you making the conscious choice to follow Jesus, to surrender all to him? We will all go through struggles, but we do not have to go through them alone. Not only is there a community of love here, at Madison Church, but there's a God who loves you deeply and wants to help you.